to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Kat. And I'm Rich. Look, James, maybe I shouldn't be here. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not being fair. You know, under normal circumstances, etc., you're really nice and funny. My friend Anna thinks you're cute. Wait, hold, hold. Your friend Anna thinks I'm cute? Your friend Anna thinks I'm cute? Shit, I just blew. Wait. <sighs> 285. 285 and the wrong girl. In this episode, we're rushing to the platform to catch 1998's frequently referenced Sliding Doors, the first film written and directed by Peter Howitt, who had become a regular face in Britain as a result of starring in the hugely successful sitcom Bread. This movie made such an impression on popular culture that episodes of both Frasier and the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt had both riffed on it. Produced on a budget of $6 million, paltry in comparison to Notting Hill's $45 million that came the following year, this character of Helen remains one of Gwyneth Paltrow's most famous roles. Tonight we'll be helping our protagonist confront her boyfriend Jerry, played by John Lynch, and lover James, played by John Hanna. Our four chief weapons are fear, surprise, ruthless efficiency, and an almost fanatical devotion to Gwyneth Paltrow's pixie haircut. I mean, we'll, we'll kind of get this bit out of the way first i mean one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this film is that no matter what you think of the film no matter whether you've seen it or not pretty much everyone knows about what a sliding doors moment is i think that's absolutely true and and this film shows it in a way is very much that you know in this case helen misses a train or she gets a train and we see how it's like a butterfly effect hinging around this one moment where her life goes one way or another, depending on, on whether she catches this train or not. And it's all because of um, a woman and her brat daughter messing around on the train stairs. But, I mean, in, in terms of looking back at this now, I mean, it was, it was pretty, i say cutting edge to a point, but for something like in a rom-com, I mean, it's, it's almost like a sci-fi element to it do you think yeah i think i think that's that's true there's something about you being put up against the idea of people yeah the consequences of people's actions and and decisions and uh showing showing you how everyone's pissing about kind of has quite a serious effect on each other's lives <laughs> uh, but yeah as you, as you say done in a way that feels as if it's combining something a bit sci-fi with something that's trying to be quite Richard Curtis. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of in that sweet spot in 1998 where four weddings and a funeral kind of came along and, and just blew up everywhere. And I think you probably had every aspiring writer was trying to pen their version. And this one, I mean, bear in mind, um, what was the name of Peter Howitt's character in Bread? Um, one of the, Which Boswell was Oh, is he? it Joey? Joey Boswell, that was it. Yeah. And... Um, he was kind of this kind of suave ladies man one wasn't he and um and he had this idea and you know again sliding doors moments it was when i believe it was john hanna managed to was in a meeting with sydney pollock who heard about this and decided to get involved and that was how the the movie got the money to be made and again, it's like it just happened to be in that meeting at that time. It's all very coincidental and everything. But um, when you look at it now, and I hadn't seen it before watching it for this since, again, probably the late 90s when it came out on video. And mm. it's really strange 
seeing what a clever idea it was and even you know no matter what your opinions are of I say I'm labeling them rom-coms but <laughs> the, these these movies where but because it's got such a twist and it's pretty well executed you can see the tangents that Helen's life goes down because she's sacked for theft because she's a criminal and <laughs> and um as she's leaving you know she she gets on this tube she bumps into John Hanna in the lift and by missing the tube and this is a again we we're not going to go into the geography of London because I'm sure we touched on that in Notting Hill Okay. Um, you know, okay. I mean, she she got on. Don't get a, me started. Well, exactly. I mean, she got on an embank, uh, embankment onto a Waterloo and City Line train to Fulham. <laughs> well, how does that work? Um, but um, but yeah, so she missed the train and got got mugged, ended up in hospital and missed her boyfriend, the John Lynch with the most magnificent nineteen nineties curtain hairdo. Yeah, you're very envious of it, aren't you? Oh, it's fabulous. I'd, I'd have loved hair like that. I couldn't quite pull it off. Um, <laughs> mine, mine was a bit messier. It was kind of a, a cross between that and something more like oasis or, or something like that. But um, and, and yeah, and, and he was being intimate with his ex-girlfriend, Jean Triplehorn, who I think I'd, the only thing I, other thing I'd seen her in was uh, Basic Instinct. Oh, yeah. Before that. And, uh, and yeah, so then she misses all this action, whereas... In the other timeline, she catches catches the train, gets harassed by John Hanna, and <laughs> makes it home just in time to find them at a, a joint moment of congress, shall we say, while uh, listening to Elton John in their bed. Uh, one thing that I quite like about Sliding Doors is that it shows uh, two people having an affair, and quite often in mainstream uh, movies when people are having an affair it's it's you know wrong but it's really quite hot and sexy and you know illicit and in this film they do quite a good job I think of showing you how stressful it can be for someone to have an affair and how as it as the affair goes on people get more and more anxious and it's all quite a kind of clumsy, pitiful sort of state that people can get themselves in. And I think that, uh, yeah, John Lynch and Gene Triplehorn do quite a good job of conveying that, I think. Yeah, because as as we go down the timeline of they've not been caught, I mean, he seems to go through like every emotional stage at one point. I mean, there's... When she comes home and he knocks because they've been drinking, you know, it's really, it probably sounded really sexy, but in their dingy flat, they're kind of spilling brandy all over each other while they're yeah. kissing. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it looks like they're enjoying the sexy aspect of it at the beginning of the movie, yeah. Of, yeah. of a Wednesday morning. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and then he knocks the brandy glass into the laundry basket. But then that, that glass in the laundry basket becomes a, a MacGuffin of kind throughout and um i mean there's a one point where she uh, helen confronts him about this and and he's really gaslights her about it i think Mm. they've they've just had a moment on the sofa and um and he really gets like oh no you're crazy you're mad you know what how could you think like that you know becomes the victim and and puts it all on her yes yeah and and it's really quite uh, almost aggressive but it's really uncomfortable watching because you know he's done the wrong thing and, and he's got away with it. Um, mm. But the fact, you know, all this stuff that he's 
frantically showering afterwards to get rid of any evidence of, well, you know, and takes her out and gets a piss and everything. And this whole web... And it's almost like Helen becomes the the sta- the passerby or the the standing by, watching his descent into almost like a farce, and we yeah. <laughs> and, and as he tries to kind of keep both of these relationships going. Meanwhile, his best mate is hilariously just watching this all happen for sport, yes, while, while providing valuable exposition. Yeah, I think that the scenes between him and his best mate might be, um, in terms of quality, I think that maybe they're the best scenes in the film, in my opinion. And I think at those moments, you can really tell that Peter Howitt comes from a sitcom background because the way he writes those scenes and the way that they're directed feel more confident, I think, than some of the other scenes that you see here and more adept uh, you know he he understands that the t- the tone that the two guys would take with each other and um the only problem with that though is that this m- might make me sound quite strange but at certain points of the film i feel more kind of sympathetic to jerry than i do to james and i think it's because he's just better written than james is I don't know if you disagree with me on that. I, I think the character of Jerry is kind of... And when I say sympathetic, I don't mean... I mean, obviously, he's a dick. I mean, what I mean is the I'm seeing it... I'm seeing the action through his eyes more than I am James's. Yeah, but I think he's a constant throughout both timelines as both the... the he's got away with it, the scoundrel, and the the one who's been left behind and, and pursuing. But I, I, I agree, though. I think he his motivations in both sides are, are a lot more apparent. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in the, in the, he's still cheating and Helen doesn't know John Hannah's a bystander. He's barely involved at all in, in that timeline. Yes, that's true. That's a good point. But Jerry, he's almost like a, a stereotype to some degree, but he's portrayed and written quite well. And I think that's where you can probably see that it was written by a man. Mm, yeah, because that's kind of where the fun and, and I say fun in that, of course, he's an adulterer. He is scum and, and on every level. But th- that's where most of the comedy comes from. Yeah. And adultery. I mean, let's face it, it's it's um, quite common. You know, I mean, these things happen to people. So but if, if when you're watching it, when you sort of see the kind of farcical and, and that's what I meant about them kind of portraying the nature of affair having in quite a comic, quite a pathetic way that's quite good and his friend really uh, making fun of him is really good as well because it kind of you know it 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 shows you from the point of view of um of jerry and actually from lydia too to a degree the the kind of you know just the fact that there's a real monotony to it and it's just getting more and more ridiculous the more he you know tries to cover up his actions and and you can tell that it's just a matter of time before helen finds out do you think it's realistic that helen takes as long as she does to figure it out though in the long-haired version of the story um i i think you kind of sympathize with her because she's got a lot else going on um mm. the fact that she's clearly she's lost her job she's a victim of crime so you know underlying traumatic issues there yeah and she's in a relationship that obviously her boyfriend's cheating on her but but as well it doesn't seem particularly happy in general they they have their good night out after he's been 
pardon my French, I'm going to get this term out there, and it was like balls deep inside his ex girlfriend. <gasps> Sorry, I just scandalised. I know, but like this, you know, I'm. I don't want to flower this up. It's disgusting. You, did, you didn't say. You didn't say, "Lady shagging Godiva." <laughs> I couldn't write that any better. But um, you know, but he's been caught in one timeline. In, in this one, he's got away with it, and he just—I don't know. I, I think Helen's got so much on her plate, having to carry this kind of—I would say loser boyfriend. But he's taking advantage of her. Oh, he really is. I mean, it is it is awful when you actually think about the fact that he's spending his days uh, with Lydia while she's working two jobs. It's <laughs> it really awful. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the fact that, you know, he's portrayed as this kind of sponge where she's off working, sort of delivering sandwiches and in a cafe, whereas he's... I mean, I, I, I'm not in the creative world, so I don't know what it's like to write a book. But he seems to make it like it's living the life of luxury where you just kind of, ah, oh, yeah, I'll just go to the library today. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I'll just do some research going down to Dorset to a nice hotel. You know. <laughs> yeah, to be fair to novelists, I don't think that adultery is always part of the remit. Well, I suppose he could say that's research. <laughs> Depends on the book. Yes, I suppose that's true. Yes. That but... would have been a good twist if at the end we just realised that the whole thing was just um, Jerry's book. Are we saying it's like Back to the Future when like George McFly wrote a book at the end of it all about his experiences and it's like Jerry publishes a book going, I had my cake and ate it. Oh dear, yeah. dear I don't know. It's quite funny that you mentioning Sidney Pollock's involvement in this film uh, is makes you wonder whether, you know, the, that whole sequence where she gets her hair cut and... And has the makeover. Do you think that's all a bit um, a bit similar to Tootsie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can we see parallels here? Do you think? Well, I think so. I mean, like on IMDb, that whole of information. Apparently, Sidney Pollack had a lot to do with the editing of the film. I think he kind of saw it as obviously whether he's put his own money in or, or whatever. But he took quite an active role. Um, the quotes that were there were quite disparaging. In that he kind, of, it was a bit pat on the head. Saying, well, I, I could see he was struggling with the pacing of the film, so I stepped in, <laughs> yeah. in in the editing suite. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can kind of see, and, and it, I mean, it was mm. such an easy way, in hindsight, of how do you make them, how do you distinguish between the two, make her look different? Um, yes. I mean, I mean, imagine the war crime it would have been if they'd cut John Lynch's hair. My God. Oh, that would have been terrible. That would have been heartbreaking. I suppose it is like a a transformative experience, you know, depending on how she felt in the relationship and stuff. And 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 as you say, in 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 the timeline where she finds out, sounds like an episode of Friends. She basically lives on her friend's floor, spare room, whatever. Has this very trendy haircut and mm. starts pursuing John Hannah, who has done well to get. I would say the lead-ish in a big British romantic comedy. Yes, although he he delivers the W.H. Auden poem in Four Weddings and a Funeral, which would have been massive a few years before that. And that's one that is one of the you know the most memorable scenes, isn't yeah. it? And he does do it brilliantly in Four Weddings. I have oh, to say he, he's so good, and I think the fact that he's come out of that and gone right, I'm the next Hugh Grant. Give me the next job. <laughs> To the point where we have the ending and the bridge and the rain. It's funny the way nobody talks on the tubes, isn't it? I mean, I really catch the tube myself, but... Uh, or lifts. 
confined spaces, everybody shuts down. Why is that? Perhaps we think everyone else in the tube or the lift is a potential psychopath or a drunk, so we close down and pretend to read a book or something. You've got a terrible tea stain in your book. Look, I don't think you're a psychopath. I just want to read my book. I understand. I apologise. But he really is quite persistent, isn't he, when he's talking to her on the tube? Yeah, to the point... I mean, again, I was a regular tube user around this time. Um, that would have been seen as just as awful, creepy, weird pain in the arse then as it as it would be now yeah maybe then it would have been more he's a prick rather than a potential sex offender but he was very forward with her and it's kind of when you you read these horrible experiences from from women on the train or whatever where like guys are pulling their headphones out to talk to them and really like overly aggressive behavior she's trying to read her book and he's pestering her i mean he's not far off kind of just getting it out he's very (laughs) it's a very strange kind of thing i mean yeah he probably fancies her and and, but again it's such a (sighs) yeah it's a very strange strange scene to go go in with i think because um yeah as you say she's she's perfectly polite she says you know he says oh you probably think I'm a psycho and she says I don't think you're a psycho I'm just trying to read my book and then he and he doesn't leave her alone she sort of asks him to leave her alone a few times and he doesn't and he asks her where she works I think he asks her quite a few questions and um yeah and she's she's just sort of trying to be you know like kind of just give him give him the brush off and then she feels a need to kind of go and apologise to him on the platform when he gets off. And when I was watching it this time, I was thinking, that's so kind of weird. I mean, it, to put the kind of responsibility onto her that she's meant to just, you know, even though she's just been fired and she's having a really bad day, she's got to feel the responsibility of talking to someone when she's not in the mood. It's just, you know, you're kind of thinking that's so, that's such a sort of strange way of making I suppose we're meant to feel sort of sympathetic to him, but it's quite odd. It kind of, like you say, it puts the onus on her to apologise for rejecting him. Yeah. Like, how dare she? He's, you know, he's taken the initiative. He's, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. (laughs) When, once you, I mean, we, we won't skip forward, but I think also once you know how the whole thing ends... When you look back on those scenes, it seems extra weird because the whole narrative concludes with us knowing that he's kept quite a big secret from her this whole time. But those scene, early scenes between the two of them, and it happens again in the bar when he finds her in the bar and he asks her, what's wrong? You know, you can tell me what's wrong. And he quite consistently pushes her to give him information about herself, like where she's working, what's happening in her personal life, this, that, the other. And that makes it seem extra weird later on that you find out that he's kept such a massive part of his personal life from her. Because then you can think, well, then why did he keep pushing her to tell him stuff then? I mean, what's what's this guy's motivation? Why is he that sinister? You know. I'd like to think if this was written now, it would be done with more subtle humor because i think that this this the part of the tube journey where he basically confront i say confront the the guy with singing along to the the music 
Yeah. That's quite clever. And I think that would be a good icebreaker. But the fact that it's kind of sandwiched between him essentially trying to hump her leg. (laughs) No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think the music and the Beatles, you know, that's all. Yeah. I think that was quite, I think if it had just been that. Yeah. It would have been, it probably would have been a bit, a lot more favourable. Um, and plus, it seemed like you know, you know, when we saw John Hanna in in other things, mm. it just seemed like he'd been to quote another thing dialed up to eleven. Yeah, and he was a bit too much, and especially while she didn't reveal straight away that she'd been fired and and all that. But this was a weekday during the day, a weekday morning, I suppose. You know, no one's a morning person that much. No. <laughs> no one that. No, completely. I, if, mm. if anyone said to me on a date, if you don't drink your fatty drinks, then you won't achieve quality cellulite, <laughs> I would walk out. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, come on. It's I, so bad. I mean, he did spend 285 on a milkshake in <laughs> Fat Boy's Cafe. <laughs> 285 in, back then is quite a lot. No, 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 it's true. That that scene, there's something about the mention of cellulite, which I kind of associate with the night. I, I think in the 90s, people talked about cellulite a lot more than they do now. But um, yeah, it's it's those two. Gwyneth has got her hair cut by then. They're talking about cellulite and you can hear Aqua turn back time <laughs> playing in the background. And so I think it's one of the sort of peak 90s moments of this film. Well, I, I love that when I was watching this and we were talking, it was... You said this film is like a parody of a 90s film (laughs) because so much of it. And again, we're before Notting Hill, which when we talked about, you know, we we talked about from a slightly different angle with with regard to celebrity and and fame. Mm. Whereas here it's kind of, you know, the unconscious, it's not a choice that, that Gwyneth has made in missing that train. But something's happened that's caused her life to split off in these different avenues and um you know in in one avenue she's got a cheating wonderfully maimed boyfriend and in the (laughs) other she's got she's being pursued by john hannah i mean in some people's eyes that's probably like the greatest thing ever um and in you know it's not like she's won the lottery is it it's funny uh john hannah's character as well he does a lot of the thing that you that you get sometimes if you're a woman walking you know the cliche of people saying cheer up love it might never happen yes i'm sure he tells her on more than one occasion to cheer up and then you know in the in that diner scene he says cheer up you know and and says i find you moderately attractive and she says moderately attractive and he says well if you lose the sad eyes and droopy mouth you you could get an upgrade (laughs) it's like Everything he's saying to her is so shit. Is this, like, again, I, I'm not down with young people's vocabulary, but is this negging? I, I think I it is negging. I think mm. that's exactly right. Like, it's like such a backhanded compliment. It's like, yeah. if you did this, this, this and this, you'd be fanciable. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to John Hanna, in that scene sometimes when when I've watched it, I've thought, I think he kind of knows that... He, I think he looks visibly a little bit nervous. Like I'm going to sit next to Gwyneth Paltrow and I'm going to, I'm going to deliver these lines and try and pull it off. And I know that I'm not going to be able to because no one could. I think you can see the fear behind his eyes. I think you can. Yeah, he certainly yeah. realizes where he is here. But I mean, was this? Did this come out 
before or after Shakespeare in Love? Before. Okay, so she hadn't won her Oscar yet. No. Okay, right, so... But, I mean, this was at the time when Gwyneth Paltrow was a surrogate Brit. Um, Yeah, I mean, apparently, yeah, she was with Brad Pitt at the time. Um, They had matching haircuts. This haircut was kind of, uh, as the kids say, iconic because Brad Pitt had a matching male version of the haircut. Right, Okay. because this would have been after seven. Yes, and I think that's how they got together. I, I think it's sometimes a bit low, low rent to go after the kind of she's out of his league, but oh know. yeah, I'm not, I'm not, no. I'm no, not no, saying that. Oh, I don't, no, I'm, I don't, I'm about you know. to. Oh okay. <laughs> he's he's not in a position to say those things to Gwyneth Paltrow. Well, who is though? I mean, what are you implying here? Who's in a position to say those things to anyone? No one is. But you know, <laughs> we're talking about the the inventor of the vaginal candle. <laughs> you know, th- this woman. For all her weirdness, it could probably do better than being the downtrodden have to put up with his shit jokes. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! For, for this little person, he's like an alpha because when they're doing their rowing club thing at the end, which isn't far off, I don't I imagine what happens on a rugby tour where they'll drink each other's vomit. And he's... Mm leading this kind of communal sing-song in a West London pub. And uh, he's a weird character. And that Monty Python thing, I remember that being really annoying that he kept saying about nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition. As though, like, my catchphrase is going to be someone else's catchphrase. It's like me walking around going, only me, or... (laughs) Something from the far show or something. Well, a lot of of guys do do that. I mean, I, I... I mean, this is the weird thing. I went to see this at the cinema at the time and boys at school would stand around and recite, you know, the knights who say knee from the Holy Grail and stuff. You know, it would be a thing that boys would do. They liked, or the parrot sketch or whatever. They they like reciting. And that's all fine. And I'm a big Monty Python fan. But that doesn't mean that it's like something that you can then keep in your back pocket as something that you're going to do glittering dinner parties and um all your friends will just will just kind of sit in a ring and you know fawn piss over themselves him. laughing yeah and fawn over you as you do I, I mean i've always thought that that scene where they're all sat around eating while he's reciting the sketch like yeah you know i'd what? rather invite a family of wasps into my bra than be at that <laughs> you know what that scene all it needed just to take it to the next level, was in the background Ronan Keating singing You Say It Best. Because <laughs> that's what that was. And when it got to the fact that when he said about having his heart broken when his eight-year-old girlfriend was stolen from him by Gary Glitter. Yeah. And bear in mind, this was 98 before all that yeah, it was stuff was, was public yeah, yeah. knowledge. But still, watching it now... Oh... When that happens as a just an unfortunate joke that has you know that obviously hasn't aged well at all, it feels like uh, it feels sort of the the aspects of it are sort of mounting. And I think at that moment as well, it's very unfortunate that it comes up during that scene because they're on the boat together, and it's the scene where you have to establish that these two have got sexual chemistry, and you know because they're about to go to bed together for the first time and you need to feel a little bit of magic between them and I don't think you do do you what do you think uh yeah it, it just it was kind of like it 
rather than film an awkward sex scene, they just cut to the note the next morning and her looking like the cat that got the cream. They do have a bit of a sex scene in there, don't they? They have um, sort of riding around together a little bit. Still. Maybe left her. Make a cup of tea. <laughs> it was so hot and steamy, I couldn't cope. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and then obviously we find out towards the end of the film that this act of love making got her pregnant. And in a spirit of symmetry from the other timeline, she was also pregnant with what can only be, I'd imagine, a baby with the most wonderful hair. Because <laughs> it, was, it was Jerry's. Um, yeah. But because what these things come in threes Lydia was also pregnant with Jerry's baby mm. from their various trysts and liaisons it was a bit of a sticky web going on yeah I mean the, something that's quite odd I think is that they give you these two different versions of Helen's life and it's heavily implied that one version apart from the fact that she dies at the end of it one version is meant to be better than the other one mm. but you're kind of thinking at the end of it, you think, yeah, but in both versions of these stories, she ends up pregnant by a guy who's been lying to her about something really important. Yeah, and then it turns out because his mum is sick and to keep up pretenses, he's pretending to still be married to his soon-to-be ex-wife mm. um, because his mum is probably very proper and equally fed up with his Spanish Inquisition shit. <laughs> Yeah. Um, rolls her eyes when he says it. And um, and because, God forbid, you know, a, an old woman could deal with the prospect of her son getting divorced from someone know, who he shouldn't be married to. Exactly. Like, yeah, I can't tell my ill mother that I've met a really brilliant woman because, you know, she'd, she'd be so upset. It would be the about your existence. death of her. Yeah, exactly. Would, yeah. yeah. Um, and again, that, that's probably quite an old-fashioned thing. That maybe it would be from Bread, where uh, Mar Boswell would have a stroke if someone had a well, divorce. Well, can I remind you of something? Go on. That whole bit reminds me of how that's quite a major part of Moonstruck. Yeah, yeah. And how, but in Moonstruck, they play it, you know, the the other way, where it's made clear that the guy that she shouldn't be getting married to is using the fact that his, you know, his mother is on her deathbed as a reason that they can't be together. And that signals to us that, you know, that it's not meant to be because otherwise he'd be strong enough to be able to confidently communicate to his mother who he's in love with and who he intends to marry. So, I mean, I, I, I totally understand what you mean about peril. You do need peril and there does need to be a complication uh, but I think that they maybe go with the wrong one because I end up thinking, is this guy much better? Because the problem is we've been seeing things so much from Jerry's point of view in the other storyline, but we haven't really been told anything about, um, you know, we we don't see James talking to his mate really about the situation with his ex-wife and his mother. So we don't, ha we haven't kind of developed that understanding of him as a character in the way that we have done with Jerry. So in the end, you kind of think, okay, well, Jerry, she should clearly leave Jerry and Jerry's a selfish bastard, but we understand that he's not necessarily an evil person. He's just awful. weak. Yes, yes, exactly. Weak. Weak is exactly right. And yeah. whereas with James at the end, you're just like, who is this guy? I still don't understand what the hell's been going on with him. What do you think? Well, the thing is, is that we still have the clips of him and his ex-wife kind of embracing 
And they yeah, they kiss each other and go hand in hand into the hospital. And I mean, so I think from the timeline, was it they'd been married for two or two and a half years? They'd been separated and were in the process of getting divorced. Yeah. So, but the fact that they're still quite close in that way suggests it probably wasn't an awful breakup. Maybe they just came to realise that this didn't work, blah, blah, blah. She's a very decent woman. Yeah, oh, yes, thankfully. Because yeah. she, ha- well, she has to be. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and there is an element that, oh, it just didn't work, but let's be friends, you know, and you know, my mum's looking quick, kiss me. Um, but it's, um, yeah. I don't know, it's, it just seems like to have him married, albeit separated and that, but the, the, the problem is it's, that's separated married that the, the gray area there isn't sufficient in my opinion maybe that's why they separated because he keeps pestering women on the tube yeah i'm sure it is i'm sure it is and um the way he expresses it on the bridge is awful that you know do you have a mum helen <laughs> do you have a mum helen and then he says permission to engage the enemy sir before he kisses her permission to engage the enemy sir Imagine what he did in bed. <laughs> Permission well, to come aboard. Your mind immediately goes there, doesn't it? Because you're thinking, oh, God. Yeah. It's that awkward. Like, it's David Brentish. Yeah. Isn't it? It's like, oh, oh standing to attention. <laughs> <laughs> in the other timeline, when hmm. um, Jerry and Lydia are still at it, um, she gets pregnant. She's fearsome. She's very, very fearsome. Yes, I think that they, they could have afforded to, I think as as the film goes on, they make her, you know, particularly with her kind of pretending to need Helen to go there to complain about the sandwiches and the job interview and things. They, they in a way that annoys me, try to kind of imply that she's becoming a bit, you know, crazy woman. Yeah. Uh, which is such a cliche and you know you don't you don't need to do that it's just unnecessary but there are other bits of it where she's actually given better lines than Helen I think Um, she's sort of you know and you actually do that scene in the hotel room you do kind of feel her genuine frustration uh, with regards to Jerry in a way that's quite understandable and you can sort of see that she's just you know she's really losing patience with him I think that she's really good actually like it's a good performance from her given the material is quite hard to to be you know anything other than as you say dragon like yeah but you do wonder like and and this isn't meant to sound as some kind of alpha male thing but what do they what does she see in jerry other than this kind of maybe maybe it is weak man who's still with a girlfriend albeit he has great hair um but it's it's kind of like and you know a, a a novelist who seems to be struggling to finish this book, which I didn't get it. It sounded like there was a joke. Oh, I'm a novelist. We'll never finish the book. He doesn't strike me as being that much of a catch. No, I think that. I mean, what do I know? But I think it might have worked a little bit better if this had been Jerry's second novel, actually. Because I think then you'd get, if his first novel had been a massive success 
but then he was really struggling to write the second one. I think you get a little bit more why, you know, the mm. people around him would be kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, he's just a genius and we just need to leave him to it. And then he'll come up with his, you know, with a gem like he did before. And that you'd kind of get why people might sort of um, react to him a little bit. As, as you say, it starts to get a bit confusing when you when it's um, just born out of their fondness for him because I don't know whether he comes across as quite charming enough to have been able to... Lydia might be pregnant. <laughs> oh, no more, please. I can't take it. <laughs> oh, this is terrific stuff. I must say, being with you makes the wait for the next episode of Seinfeld much easier to bear. I didn't reckon on things turning out this way. Everything's a cock-up. What's going on? Well, to use boxing parlance, if I may, it's quite simple. You've just lost. It's You feel bad because the supposedly improved Helen with the hairdo and the boyfriend who probably has left his wife, and then she dies. Yeah. It's like, okay, right, she's dead. And then it's like the end of that Star Wars film where she died she died of a broken heart and then the Helen with the put upon one with the hair the long hair she lives in order to to dump him and it's kind of like right now she can start again her sliding doors moment is she lived yes which kind of implies that you get punished for having a good haircut (laughs) which I think is unfair there's one timeline bit in terms of the way time is used that I find fascinating. So she's walking down the road with James in the short haircut version of the story. And he's telling her that, um, you know, he's saying, why don't you set up your own company? You don't want to work for someone else forever. And she's saying, oh, I don't know if I could do that. And then he said, he drops her off at the door and he says, okay, see you on Saturday, wear something warm because it's cold on the river. So you assume that Saturday, later on that week, right? Mm-hmm. Before Saturday happens, that river date, we see her apply for a loan. Uh-huh. <laughs> she gets the letter accepting her application for the loan. Then she gets some office space. They paint it. They get photocopies installed and everything. And then you see her at her own desk where she has a you know computer and everything. She seems to have employed an assistant and they're getting sandwiches and stuff. And this all happens before Saturday on the river. It was the 90s. <laughs> New Labour. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a better time, I think, for everyone, clearly. <laughs> Aqua, Dido, it was, what a time to be alive. What a time. (laughs) What a time. Tony Blair, thank you. (laughs) It was a nice symmetry having them have the sandwiches delivered because now they are the ones who have the minions bring them food. Yeah. We are better than you, bring us sandwiches. I know, I know. It's It's not great, is it really? It should have been someone who looked like Ava Helen bring her the sandwich. Yeah. Just to rub it in. And then, um, yeah, and just as you had on our recent episode that we did about My Best Friend's Wedding, where you had a bit of a rant about Dermot Mulroney, I think I, <laughs> I, reserve, I reserve to have a bit of um, 
who rant about how Gwyneth Paltrow looks at her first ever PR event that she's done with her own company. And you see her just sort of drifting around this party in no bra, looking like a supermodel with her hair up, you know, just exuding relaxation. And, you know, it just makes me sick. And I mean, I I would just like to give a shout out to someone who doesn't get a lot of love on movie podcasts and the the kind of assistant, you know, in, in great detective stories, there's always a, a Watson or someone who helps sleuth unravel the mysteries. And in this, um, Helen realised that Jerry was cheating in the the other timeline because of our friend 1471. Because BT introduced the 1471 service, you needn't be left wondering who's cold. Hello. Hi, Mark. Just calling to make sure you're resting your legs. Just one more reason why thousands of people come back to BT every week. Like at one point she calls him, you're, you're a pissing, shagging wanker. <laughs> the wanker got a lot of outings. A lot. Uh, well, yeah, when she finds out that he's definitely in the short haircut version, she finds out that he's definitely still seeing mm. Lydia. She says, "You sad, so you wanker, you sad, sad wanker." And I can remember kind of thinking, "I don't know." It feels it feels sort of odd to say wanker that many times during sort of a moment where you're. I don't know. It feels like such a kind of devastating relationship moment to just kind of go, "You're a wanker." <laughs> I don't know. But wanker's just such an English insult. I mean, I, I, mm. I'm quite fond of the word prick. You know, prick, yeah, has, prick. More yeah, yeah, sure. prick yeah. has more power than wanker. Yeah. But wanker is still, yeah, it is kind of just, it's almost like men behaving badly. Yes, it feels quite 90s. I think that's mm. the thing. I think you do hear it still, but it's used very emphatically in this film where it feels kind of like, yeah, men wanking is a big preoccupation. <laughs> We're going to build that into all of our language. So. You wanker. You sad, sad wanker. I want to give I want to give a shout out to Zara Turner, who plays Helen's friend Anna. Because I think it's such a it's I think she's re- she's really good actually and she's really likable and it's quite a thankless task because if you look at it, the the role exists solely. She just has to be this woman whose life revolves around her friend Helen's man drama. She's just got to open doors and answer phones all the way through this film, just sort of going, what? She doesn't want to talk to you. This film you know. wouldn't pass the Bechdel test, would it? I don't think so. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean from, from things you've written and, and other things you've, you've read and, and watched and stuff, I mean, she is the most, one of the most pigeonholed type of characters. Yes. You know, she exists solely, solely to enable... Gwyneth to to grow to rant as a as a shelter as yes. an as an answering service um, yeah to wait for her in the hair salon while she's having her hair dyed which by the way would take like four hours so for her to just be waiting there you think oh you know Anna go and get yourself a coffee Jesus four hours for a haircut no well she's getting it dyed as well mm, oh, we'll have to talk about this later okay 
<laughs> this film is set during the height of Ladette mm. Britpop culture. And I think at the time we were all meant to think that it was, you know, a real sort of height of liberation for for women and everyone was, you know, drinking and smoking a lot and having a great time and partying a lot and, you know, and to a degree obviously that was true but when you watch this you think i know that they have helen setting up her pr firm but you don't re they don't really kind of pay attention to that detail very much you don't really kind of see that come through in her personality how, like how good she is at that or or you don't really learn what she's you know you know for instance you know that james you know is a good rower but you don't really know anything like that about helen no the, the main thing is her getting involved with these two guys and that's what you're meant to be the stakes of her life are just about who she's dating really aren't they it's like we've boiled her down to like a Gwyneth Paltrow type character where you know it's like we've become heat magazine oh wow it's so yeah so it's meta yeah yeah who's Gwyneth dating Jerry or John because they could have done a my best friend's wedding at the end of this film where a good way of resolving it could have been her in the lift at the end with the long hair and her not having to run into James and have him reciting Monty Python at her and her just going and, you know, living her best life, not having to be involved with either of these guys. It could have been the her friend with that most 90s of drink, Grolsch, um, going, let's get pissed. I mean, not, appro yes! not appropriate in a hospital, but um, but still. Well, as we turn the sexy sounds of Elton John down and remove our Waterford brandy glasses from the laundry basket, we leave you with the question, if one split second sent your life in two completely different directions, could you potentially miss the deserted train carriage of your dreams? I've been Rich. I've been Kat. And this has been Don't You Want Me. <laughs>